For those of you who grew up in the late 60s or 70s or even to the early 80s, Saturday morning television was must-see TV. If you can remember back to what it was like, we didn't have channels dedicated to children's network. We didn't have Disney or Nickelodeon or anything that was dedicated just to children's viewing. So Saturday morning really was the only dedicated time where you could watch television shows and cartoons that were geared just towards kids. And advertisers understood this. They began to advertise a lot, uh, sugar-filled you know, cereal on Saturday morning and uh, all other kinds of toys and gifts. But for kids like me that grew up during that time period, it was, it was something we got up for. You couldn't get us up any other time but Saturday morning for shows like Land of the Lost and H.R. Puffin stuff and uh, Scooby-Doo cartoons. I mean, it was such a big deal that Scooby-Doo would have guests there were actual actors that they would draw onto the Scooby-Doo cartoon. And you would look in the TV guide and see who was going to be on there, and it would get you up. It was a crazy time. But also it was a time when parents still cared about what was on uh, Saturday morning TV or children's television. And so there was a, a little worry about kids getting up and watching eight or nine hours of cartoons and television shows geared for them. So the networks got together and put together an educational group of shorts that was called Schoolhouse Rock. And Schoolhouse Rock was their answer to brain rot from all the other cartoons and television shows. And Schoolhouse Rock was used to kind of kind of teach you something that you didn't really understand you were learning. They had Schoolhouse Rock episodes that dealt with history and science and grammar and math even. And they would be cartoons that were put to little catchy songs. And you, you would sing along and you would learn these songs. And you didn't realize that as you were learning these songs, you were actually learning something. And I came to understand this when I was in high school later on. And we had to stand up and memorize and recite the preamble to the Constitution. And almost everyone in our group sang the preamble because of the schoolhouse rock. We would start out, we the people, in order for, and we would just go through. And what's amazing is I still know every Every word to that today. And I still know every word to I'm just a bill, how a bill becomes a law. And it, it would probably be good for some of our congressmen to go back and watch Schoolhouse Rock and learn some of those lessons. But one of, the, one of the most popular schoolhouse rocks that there were was actually a grammar schoolhouse rock, and it involved a train conductor who talked about conjunctions. And it was called Conjunction Junction. And some of you are going to sing that now in your head. You'll have it in your head. If you had kids that watched that all the time, and once you start singing that, and he would sing about conjunctions, and, or, and, but, and he would say, hooking up words and phrases and letters, and he would, he would use these um, trains as, as conjunctions and use conjunctions to put together two groups of sentences. And, and the definition we came to understand by watching Schoolhouse Rock and Conjunction Junction was that a conjunction is a word that links two separate thoughts together, and, or, but. We also learned that when they use but as a conjunction, many times it is used to link phrases or words that seem to have just the opposite definition. A definition may mean one thing, and then it would say but, and it would come together with a separate thought. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about because you have lived that conjunction. You have experienced it. Somebody in your life came up to you and told you, you did a great job, but. 
or you look real nice today, but. And you always know what's going to follow that but is something that's totally different or really maybe discounts what they told you in the first thing. That's the power of a conjunction. And a couple of weeks ago, as I prayed about what I was going to share on Easter Sunday and uh, what the Holy Spirit was leading me to share, I, I couldn't get away from one verse. Couldn't get it off my mind. Couldn't get it off my heart. And it wasn't a traditional Easter verse. It wasn't something that you might normally preach on Easter Sunday when it's supposed to be the crowds are there and you're supposed to have your home run best sermon ever. Wasn't one of those kind of verses. But it was a verse I couldn't escape. Because in the middle of that verse contained a conjunction that encapsulates the message of Easter in a clear and concise way. It's a short little verse that when we began to read it and understand it and allow the Holy Spirit to speak it in our heart, we recognize the power of Easter and the power of the resurrection. So this morning, I want to take just a few moments and look at this verse. And it's a verse probably many of you know because it's, uh, it's been listed as the third most memorized, most quoted, most popular verse in the Bible. Only behind John 3.16 and Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that verse is Romans 6.23. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there. You can look at it in your order of service, but I want you to read it. And if you have an opportunity as you read it, I want you to think along with us about the terms that we find in this very simple verse. The terms that, that encapsulate, that, that strengthen the message of Easter. Now, as you're turning there, I would remind you or help you understand that Romans chapter 6, the context for this verse, is Paul is talking to Christians who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, who have been saved, but who have in their life allowed sin to come back in. These are Christians who, through their lackadaisical attitude through their attitude that, that, uh, of rationalization, they have somehow allowed sin to begin to control their lives again. This life that they've given over to God, that they've given over to the Holy Spirit, in their struggle to defeat sin, they've allowed sin back in. And so Paul is, is confronting them with that. But it's not just a message for Christians. There is a message and a promise in this verse for every one of us in this room this morning. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, no matter if you were dragged here this morning, if you had no intention of coming to church, or if you've never been in church before, there is a promise in this passage that is for you. So I want you to listen to what Paul says. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now why is that an Easter passage? Why would we look at that passage for Easter? Why is it even relevant to Easter? Because all of us in this room, sometime in our life, represent part of that passage. He starts by saying, for the wages of sin is death. The idea there is that because of sin and sin's introduction into the world, that every person who has ever sinned is condemned to die. And for all of us in this room, that was you at one point in your life. There, you were under the condemnation of sin. You were under the control of sin. And your destiny was to be separated from God for eternity. But, and there's that conjunction, but Easter happened. And when Easter happened, it changed the end of the story. 
When Easter happened, it was no longer just a period after the wages of sin is death. But now the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when Jesus Christ got on the cross, when he gave his own life, when he bled and he died, he did it for your sins and my sins. And that made the first part of this story inconsequential to those who would receive him. And on the third day when he rose from the grave, he defeated death and he defeated the grave. And in doing so, he allowed you and I an opportunity to experience the same thing. You see, the end of the story is not the wages of sin. The end of the story is you have a new beginning. You have a new chance. You have a new opportunity this morning. Paul gives us a perfect illustration of something to compare and contrast. He lays it out very simply. Who is in control of your life? Who right now makes the decisions in your life? Is it sin or is it God? And he says, here are the consequences of who is in control of your life. If sin is in control of your life, then the wages of that sin, the consequence of that sin is always going to be death. If God's in control of your life, the consequences of that decision will always bring eternal life. Then he talks about how you receive the consequences of those actions. Either it's earned as death, the wages of sin, or it's a gift of God freely given unto you that's received through faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to drill down for just a moment and look at those terms to help you really understand what this means to you this morning. To help us really understand the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He first says on the first side that the wages of sin is death. A wage is something that you earn. All of you that have had a job, you have earned a wage. It's fair payment for something that you've done. It's, it's payment for work that you've committed. Matter of fact, here in the Greek, it is a term used to describe the Roman's food ration. It would be a Roman's food ration uh, at the end of the day when a Roman soldier went to, to back to camp. He was given a food ration that was part of his wage for the service that he'd committed. So what Paul is saying here is that there is a way there is a payment that is given to you for your life, for the things that you do. And the payment of a sinful life, and the word there, sin, is easy to define. It just simply means missing the mark. It means failing to be obedient to God's command. It means failing to live up to God's standard. And you need to understand this morning, you and I don't get to determine what is a sin and what isn't a sin. Popular opinion doesn't get to determine what is a sin and what is not a sin. Culture does not get to determine what is a sin and what isn't a sin. Sin is clearly defined by God in His Word. People say, but pastor, what about things that aren't described in God's Word? What about those things that really aren't broken down and some actions and some thoughts and some behaviors that aren't really clear in the Bible? It's easy to determine whether or not that's a sin. All you've got to do is with the leadership of the Holy Spirit, ask yourself, is this behavior, is this thought, is this action, does it give glory to God or does it break God's heart? And if my action, my behavior, my thought have even a hint of breaking God's heart, why would I ever consider doing it? If you were in a relationship, if you were married and you knew there was some behavior, some thought that broke your spouse's heart, why in the world will you ever consider doing it? See, the Bible says that sin is disappointing God's standard. And Jesus teaches that sin isn't just our behavior. It's not just something we do. It happens in our mind. It also happens in our attitudes, in our thoughts. 
Sin isn't just something that we commit. Sin can be something that we don't do. When God tells us to do something, when God tells us to love, and God tells us to forgive, and we don't, that's a sin. It's called a sin of omission. But the thing that all of us need to recognize this morning, every one of us in this room is a sinner. The verse I quoted earlier, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, this morning, it shouldn't be hard for us to admit that we're sinners. Because every one of us is. There's not a person in this room that has not escaped failing to live up to God's standard. The only person that ever did that was Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life. The Bible teaches that when Adam and Eve took that apple or whatever fruit it was and ate and were in disobedience to God, they introduced sin to the world and that sin became part of our nature from the time of Adam and Eve to this day. You see, you don't sin because you're a sinner. You sin because you're, or you don't sin, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. That's hard to say, easy to understand, right? It means that you sin not because you want to, it's because who you are. You don't believe that there is original sin? You go hang out with some preschool kids sometime. (laughs) Kids that hadn't been taught right and wrong. See how selfish they are. Where does that selfishness come from? It comes from original sin. It comes from a corrupt nature. This nature that's inside of us. And you notice that when he said the wages of sin, he didn't use plural. He didn't say the wages of sins is death. He said the wages of one sin is death. One sin is enough. Some of us in this room, I hear people that I talk to and I share the gospel with, and they say, I'm not that bad. I try to do good. I I try to live right. I, I do my best. Well, the Bible clearly teaches that if you commit one sin in your life, and I doubt there's anyone that's ever been able to do that, but if you commit one sin in your life, it's enough for you to receive the payment. You earn the wage. And what is that wage? What is that payment? It's death. Now, it's clear here that Paul's talking about death in a sense of comparing it to eternal life. So he's talking about physical death, and he's talking about spiritual death and being separated from God because the Bible teaches us that all of us are destined to die. But when Jesus rose from the grave, he defeated death. He conquered the grave. And so those who receive Christ aren't condemned to death any longer. Death in the physical sense is just a passing over into a new beginning with God. But you see, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ, if you've never given your life to him, then the only hope for you is to pay the penalty of sin. And that sin is death. But the thing I want you to hear this morning is, Paul's not just talking about sometime in the future. Because sin doesn't just condemn you in the future. Sin condemns you today. Sin is always destructive. Sin always brings death. He's reminding us that sin doesn't just have a weight on our future. It has a weight on your relationships today. It has a weight on your self-esteem today. It has a weight on the way that you live today, the way that you identify yourself today. Sin always lies. It always makes promises that it can't fulfill. It always creates bigger hunger when it promises fulfillment. Think about the things that we deal with in our own lives and how sin has destroyed them. Think about how pride destroys relationships. Pride causes us to be selfish and we look down on others. We look to others only to see what they can give to us. Think about lust. Lust destroys ourself, destroys our personality, breaks down fidelity, breaks down our, our willingness to be loyal. It undercuts our integrity. 
Think about gluttony. I'm just talking about the big sins the Bible lists. Think about gluttony, which is excess in any way. Drink, food, drugs, anything. Gluttony destroys ourselves. It destroys our personality, the body. It leads to self-destruction. Think about anger. Anger destroys others. It destroys our relationship with people in our lives. Laziness, slothfulness, that destroys our ambition. It destroys our goals. See, what Paul is trying to help you understand is that sin doesn't just affect your eternity. Sin affects your today. Some of you are wondering why your relationships are a mess. Some of you are wondering why you have anger issues. Some of you are wondering why you struggle with things from your past that you hadn't been able to get past. It's because of sin. Because sin will always deep down inside of you corrupt and destroy. Sin was such a big deal that God recognized the only way to rid the earth of it is to send his only son to die on the cross. Paul says that the payment for sin, the payment for one sin, is death. Not just death in the future, but death today, death right now. The corruption of everything that you have in your life, sin corrupts absolutely. But, but, Easter came along. Jesus Christ freely said, He'll receive the cross. Freely took that crown of thorns. Freely took that beating. Freely took those nails. And he died to break the power and the curse and the wage of sin on our lives. When we sing about it and when we talk about it, we like to think of sin and this, this theological, this large term. But you need to recognize that when we talk about Jesus dying for sin, it was for your sin and it was for my sin. The pain and the suffering and the struggle was so that you might be set free, so that you might experience life. It was to pay a wage that you and I could never pay. It was to die so that we didn't have to. That's why Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. You notice he didn't say, I am finished, because he was just getting started. He said, it is finished. Why? Because the wage was paid. The wage of sin was paid. Jesus Christ there on the cross and as he was taken off that cross, he became the Easter conjunction. He became the bridge that provides a way from getting to the first part of this passage to the second part of this passage. It's Jesus Christ who becomes that conjunction that bridges death to life. That's why Paul ends this in verse 23 by saying it is life, eternal life through Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus because the only way to cross that bridge, the only way to go from the wages of sin and death to life and eternity is through and in the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible says there is no other name that men might be saved. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. This morning, you need to recognize that Easter provides an opportunity. That Easter provides a bridge. Easter provides a conjunction that takes us away from the wage of sin and death. And if a wage is something that you earn, then a gift is something that you're given freely. So you can't earn a gift. Something that you're given in spite of yourself. Something that you're given out of love. The Bible says God's love for you and I caused him to give us a gift. 
A gift that we could never earn. The word here for gift is the Greek word charisma, which means free gift. Or really, it's where we get the word grace. Grace is unmerited favor. So if you wanted to retranslate this passage, it would read, The wages of sin is death. Today it's death. Tomorrow it's death. Eternally it's death. But the free gift of the grace of God is eternal life. Why in the world would anyone turn that around? Why in the world would anyone walk that away? The results of the wage of sin, the results of sin controlling your life, is always death and destruction. But the results of giving God your life is His free gift of eternal life. When Jesus rose from the grave three days later, He defeated death. And every person in this room can do the very same thing through the salvation that He offers this morning. See, we need to understand that death is not the end for those who accept the gift. Death is just a new beginning to experience Christ and all that He has for us. Eternal life that he's talking about here is not something that starts the moment they do your funeral or the moment you begin your last breath. Eternal life is something that starts the moment you accept Jesus Christ into your heart. You see, when you accept the gift of Jesus Christ, you don't have to wait to receive it. You don't have to wait to get the benefits. It starts the moment you say yes to him. All of a sudden, you begin to experience all of the promises of the word of God. And if it's true that the wages of sin is death and that death is something we experience in everything and in every day of our lives, then the opposite is true as well. That eternal life can be had today. And what does that produce? It produces contentment and joy and hope and peace and love. Right now. You don't have to wait until you die to receive those things. You can experience it today. You can move from death to life. Ask yourself, who's in control of your life? Who's in charge? The Bible says there's only two options. It's either yourself and sin or it's God. And it's clear from one simple passage that if it's yourself and it's sin, the only hope that you have for your life is death and separation from God. You wonder why you struggle. You wonder why your relationships fall apart. You wonder why things continue to go against you. Maybe it's because you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ and put him in control of your life and experienced eternal life in everything that you have. All you have to do this morning to experience that is to receive him. Accept his gift. But you see, that's the thing about a gift. You can know you're getting a gift. Your name can be written on the gift. You can talk about the gift. You can sing about the gift. You can even give thanks for the gift. But until you receive the gift, you can't experience it. I remember a friend of ours was, their daughter was getting married and they lived out of town and we decided to buy them a wedding gift. And some of you have probably been like this. We couldn't go to the wedding, so we thought we'll buy them a wedding gift. And so we bought a bunch of things that were on their wedding registry, and we put them in boxes, and we labeled them. This, we're going to ship these to them. That was two years ago. Those boxes are still on a shelf in our house. My wife isn't happy about me sharing that story. <laughs> Is it their gift? It's theirs. Has their name on it. We told them, we got you this gift. We went on the register and checked it off. It's your gift. 
But are they enjoying that gift? Are they experiencing that gift? No. Our shelf is. Let me tell you something. Salvation's the same way. We can read about it. We can sing about it. We can celebrate it. We know that it's available. But you can't experience it until you open it up and receive it and accept it. Until you make it yours. And my fear is that there's so many religious and spiritual people in church today that come and talk about the gift of salvation and talk about eternal life. Jesus said, I come that you might have life and life more abundantly. So many people sing about it, but they never experience it when they walk out of church on Sunday. It's because there is a gift that is theirs that they've never made theirs. They've never received it. They've never accepted it. So how do you do that? It's very simple. First thing you do is you admit that the first part of this verse is right. I'm a sinner. I failed. We call it confess. You don't admit it to me. You don't admit it to your spouse. You admit it to God. You confess to him, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize I've been trying it in my own power. I've been trying it in my own strength. I've been trying to work these things out and and I'm just banging my head against the wall and I've been in church all my life and I've been religious, but I've never really accepted your gift. Today, I want to say, God, that's me. And I recognize that the wage of my sin is death because I'm a sinner. The second thing is you repent. And repentance isn't something we like to talk about in church today. Repentance isn't something we mention much. But it's funny because the very first thing that Jesus said when he started his public ministry was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The very first thing Peter said when Peter went before the crowd at the temple at Pentecost was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The very first thing John the Baptist is recorded in the Bible saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. See, what does it mean to repent? It means to turn around. Means to change your mind. What do you change your mind about? You change your mind about sin. Repent means that all of a sudden sin is no longer a little white lie or something that's to be rationalized or excused or is is dealt with in a rote prayer. Sin is something that breaks a holy God's heart. Sin is something that caused Jesus to go on the cross and that breaks you to the point of saying, I don't want sin. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn away from that which I was going and ask God to change me. See, I think on this Easter Sunday, that's a great message for those of us who are already in Christ. Because sometimes we forget the cost of that forgiveness of sin, the cost that it was for Jesus. You see, I think sometimes we in the church forget to understand that Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise from the grave so that we could play around with and invite sin into our life again. That's why Paul starts his passage out in Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You see, I think so many in the church have forgotten over the years how corrupting sin is, how destroying sin is. And we spend all of our time rationalizing it or making excuses or repeating rote phrases. Father, forgive me. 
And we think that's enough. You see, repentance means when you come to recognize what sin means to God, what breaks God's heart breaks your heart. When's the last time your heart was broken over the sin in your life, church? When's the last time you got broken because of what you allowed in to your life, what you allowed into your family? Repentance means to turn around, to say the same things that God says. You accept Him. You repent. And then you ask Him into your heart. It's not a hard process. All that means, and I know we've made it a ritual and we've made it a routine. We've said you've got to pray this prayer or do this or walk down an aisle or come to a church. No, you don't have to do any of that. It's very simple. Right where you are on this Easter Sunday morning, all you've got to do is say, God, this is true. I'm a sinner. God, I want to repent. I'm sorry. And God, I want you to be in charge of my life. Take control. I'm tired of sin having control. I'm tired of self having control. God, you take control. And you just say that prayer to God or some other words like it. You pour out your heart to him. And the Bible says in that instance, the power of Easter comes alive. The power of the empty tomb, the power of the cross is energized in your heart. You open that present and all of a sudden what you've been singing about and what you've been thinking about becomes a reality. And it's more than just something that people talk about. It becomes part of your life and it changes everything. And that's available right now. Why would anyone walk away? Why would anyone choose the offer or the opportunity to receive this by rejecting God. You see, the message for all of us this morning, and I'm done. The message of Easter is, your story's not finished. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you think people think about you, or regardless of what you even think about yourself, God didn't add a period to this story. He added a conjunction. And He wants to do the same to your life this morning. You may feel like your life is meaningless. You may feel empty without hope. You may feel like nobody else knows how you feel. Nobody else experiences what you're going through. That's understandable because the Bible, I just said, teaches that the wage of sin is destruction, emptiness, and death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. What will you choose? Let's pray.